I think as humans, we are judgmental by nature. We can easily craft categorical judgments without knowing the full context. Like, like for instance, we can see how somebody maybe isn't dressed very well and assume something about them, like they must not care much about themselves. Their hair is all over the place. They just, I just, I, I mean, come on, seriously, people? You came to Walmart in pajamas? I'm no, no judgment if that's been you. God loves you. Everybody needs something real quick. You run out of milk because the snow is falling. I get it. It's, but we can easily categorize somebody and place them just by a simple glance. We, we can see how kids are misbehaving in public, and we look directly at the parents, and our first thought is, you know, some people ought not be allowed to procreate. They <laughs> just, it ought to, need to pass a test. Is it getting too real in the house of the Lord? Do I, need to, do I need to facade it a little bit more for us? We see people buying alcohol and we automatically assume they must be an alcoholic. We have somebody honk at us behind us in the car and you can tell that they obviously now have an anger problem and I bet they beat their spouse too. And you've already made a snap judgment about their entire life story because you forgot to go when the light was green, people. We are judgmental people, and we can easily, without knowing the full context, put people in certain categories. I'm sure you've probably heard the statement or some form of it, if it wasn't for the Christians, I'd follow Jesus. If it wasn't for the church, I would believe in God. If they didn't just blank, and most of the time, it's a statement of hypocrisy. Did you know that of all of the reasons, there was a, a, a study done by a research group, Barna Research Group, several years ago, and they did a research, and the top three reasons why people say they will not believe in Jesus and won't follow God, three of the top reasons all had to do with this, this moralistic judgment, judgment and hypocrisy was right in the top three. This problem of hypocrisy was in the top three reasons why people didn't want to follow God. Those ranked higher than evidential reasons. In other words, people were like, I don't believe God exists or creation versus science. I, I just, that's not a reason. That wasn't even in the top. That's not in the top three. Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Evidential things. No. Does Jesus really heal? Evidential reasons. Is Jesus who he said he was or is he just a myth? Evidential things. Those didn't even make it in the top Top three, but hypocrisy did. There is a problem with hypocrisy. And for many people who want to believe in God, who need to believe in God, who want to, to have this, this higher being as they would describe it, they would say, I desperately want to believe in a God. I wish there was a God. I wish, but I just can't get past the pain and the hurt and the problem that I have with hypocrisy. And so many people choose to reject God. In this series, The Problem of God, we're, we're on a bit of a quest to explore truth, looking at evidence that leads us to examine what people believe and why. That's really the exploration that we've been on in this series, the, the problem of God. And we're on week number three. And if you've missed any of these weeks, I, I highly encourage you to go to the website or download the church app and listen back to the other 
messages in this series as we've been honestly looking at the evidence saying, okay, what is the evidence showing us? And this week, I want to talk about the problem of hypocrisy. The problem of hypocrisy. Now, to be honest, hypocrisy, before you would jump to it, hypocrisy isn't a the other denominations problem, right? Like that's the Methodist problem. The Methodists, they be, they're all, all hypo- hypocritical. I mean, they just, no, no, they're a hip, hypocrites. The Baptists, all of them. And our church, we're non-denominational, so that's not our problem, no, no, that's, that's not the truth. Hypocritical, hip, hypocrisy isn't, you know, a problem with, you know, those other denominations or other religions. No, hypocrisy isn't even a legalist problem. Oh, those people, they're just legalistic, all about rules, 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 rules. No relationship, all rules. They just stand, sit, kneel, do this. You have to say this. You have to wear this. And if you're not dressed in the appropriate way, when you walk through the doors, you have to sit in a special section where all the reject Christians sit. And it's all the legalistic people. They're the hypocritical ones. And if we could get rid of all the legalism, then we get rid of all the hypocrisy. But that's not true either. That's not really, that's not really the problem. Hypocrisy isn't a political problem. Hypocrisy isn't a them problem. Oh, it's them. No, no. Hypocrisy is a human problem. Hypocrisy is a human problem. If you have breath in your lungs, you have to deal with the problem of hypocrisy. It's a it's a us problem. It's a me problem. It's a me too problem. It's a you and me problem. Hypocrisy is a human problem. Now, I am not here to deny that the church has problems. The church is at large and even our church. Our church isn't a perfect church. We are really aware of that. In fact, you hang around here long enough, you'll start to see the warts and all the things that that you don't see the first time you show up, and you'll find things that you like, and you'll find things that you don't like. Why? Because we're not a perfect church. And the minute the church starts to be perfect is the day that there are no human beings left in the church. But the church does have problems. In fact, all through the centuries, church has had problems. See, in church... Uh, when you, you get involved with a group of humans, you'll eventually find places where lies are spoken. Trust has been broken. Sometimes harsh words are used out of a moment where somebody said something to you and it was harsh and it cuts you and it wasn't right. And, and all of a sudden you, you, you're leaning back towards it must be a hypocritical thing, but it's not necessarily that because it's a human issue. The church no doubt has problems. There's been abuse. There's been neglect. There's been judgmental uh, things that have been said and done, and it's not okay. There's problems. I'm, I will be the first to admit it. And the church throughout history has gotten a bad rep, and kind of for good reason. In the book, the problem of God, which we've kind of been gleaning insights from through this series, the author Mark Clark does a little bit of math. See, because there's something that as Christians, we either like to ignore or try and overlook altogether or, or deny happen, and we really can't do either of those things. And that's, that's the problem with the Christian crusades. See, during 
uh, centuries ago, there was a crusades that went on that people who just plucked scripture, we talked about those pluckers last week, uh, get, the, get the recording, it'd be well worth your time just for that section alone. But they started plucking scripture and they didn't interpret scripture correctly. And so they went on these crusades and they killed over 200,000 people were killed over a 500 year period in the crusades. All under the banner of Christianness. Can't deny that. I, I don't have a good reason why that happened. I, I don't know why they did it. I don't think it was right then, and it wouldn't be right today. See, because if violence is our first response, there's something wrong with our heart. And it was a problem then. And so for years, people have had a problem with Christianity and say, it's so hypocritical. They say love one another, but here under the name of Christianity, they killed 200,000 people in a period of 500 years. And so atheists come along and they say, you know what? It's better to not have a God at all. If we could just eliminate religion altogether, the world would be a better place. We would get back to this brotherly humanity and everything we'd get. That would be the solution that the atheists And they have for centuries said, atheists come people who said, no, there is no God. If we could just eliminate religion, life would be better. But the problem is that under atheist regimes, that there were over 100 million people killed in the last 100 years alone. If we just remove God, people who lived a life saying there is no God, let's remove religion from the equation. They themselves in their quest for a solution. From Nazism to Marxism to communism, a hundred million people. No, I'm not saying that we can justify the 200,000 that Christians did, quote unquote, because of the hundred million. No, I'm saying it was both wrong. But obviously the answer isn't to eliminate religion altogether. How did that work out for them? 100 million people in the last 100 years during our, our time of enlightenment, during our time of, of uh, education and the industrial age and all these, we're just so educated now that if we can just, that's, that's, not, that's not the answer, all in the name of no God at all. So we can't deny that the church has had a bad rap for, for a lot of years and we can't get around that, but the reality is that removing it all together and saying there is no God and we shouldn't follow a God, that's not really an answer either. Now we could today, in addressing the problem of hypocrisy, just dismiss it by saying that, uh, that, that not all people who go to church are Christians. That would be an easy dismissal of it. Well, the people who are hypocrites, they're not really Christians. And we could just dismiss it. And while it's true, there are many people, probably many in this room statistically, that believe in God, but have never yet surrendered to God. That's a problem. Many who have believed in a God and his ability, but have yet to really surrender their lives. That's, that's an issue. That's a problem. And we could just diminish it and say, well, those are the people that are being all hypocritical. But I don't think that that's 100% the right way to present the evidence either. There has to be another way. There has to be another way. See, because any time that we make a decision as humans to be hypocritical, it's because there's a tension. And the tension is this. There is a tension between the ideal and the real. There's a tension that we live in between the ideal 
and the real. You, you, you deal with this as well. And it's within this tension that the, our tendency or our response to the tension is to act hypocritical. So, see, because we have an ideal church. Ideally, church would sing my favorite songs, and every person from the pastor to the toddler would know when I wasn't there, and they would all show up at my door and call me and bring me meals, and, and everybody would know everything about my life, and it's a nice small community, and that's my ideal church, but we have a real church where other people got lives and other things going on, and the only reality is, is if you're not in personal relationship with people, those people aren't responsible for you not being there because you have a free will. Right, like we have an ideal of church, but there's a reality to church. Ideally, everybody's kind and loving and never critical, and we all feel feeling good, and nobody ever has to repent, and we don't ever talk about sin and all these other things. That would be ideal, but then we have real world stuff that we have to wrestle with and deal with, and there's a tension between the ideal and the real. You have an ideal marriage but then you have a real marriage. You would never fight. Oh, my ideal marriage, we'd never fight. And every morning I'd wake up, there'd be music playing and my breath would smell fresh and my makeup would be perfect and, and everybody would know what I need and we would serve one another in the bonds of love and it would just be perfect and this is my ideal. Marriage and finances would be perfect and oh, it'd be wonderful, but then you live in a real world with what you actually married and you're like, dang, your breath stank, brother. Can you just please just... Would you put your dishes away? Like, don't leave them on the sink. And by godly, what's going on with the underwear on the floor? Can we just like, come on. We all have this tension between what's in our mind, what is ideal, and in reality, what is real. And so it's within that tension that we present something on Instagram. We present something in the store that is somewhere between the ideal and the real. And it always tends to be more ideal than real. And that's where hypocrisy begins to show up. You have the ideal kids always say yes, sir, and no, sir. Always obey on the first time. They get straight A's, and they're never tardy, and they wake up on their own with a smile on their face. And their room is clean. I mean, we have an ideal kids, and then we've got our real kids, right? And you've worn out four belts just this morning, and you can't tell anybody anything. It's just like this tension that we live in between the ideal and the real. And we have an ideal job, but yet we, have a, we thought it would be awesome. And we would always have the answers, and our boss would always promote us. And with that promotion would come less responsibility and more money. And, and it would just be wonderful. But then we have a real boss who wants us to work hard. We have this tension between the ideal and the real, the ideal and the real, ideal and the real. And in between this tension of ideal and real, something tends to pop its head up and it's called shame. Because what we thought was ideal and what would be and what should be and what we want everybody to think, and we come to church and we put on our happy face and I'm good brother, you're good brother, amen, and we have an ideal life, but we also have a real life. And in the middle of that tension between our ideal life and our real life exists this thing called shame. And when shame begins to grow in us, we begin to live hypocritical lives. We begin to pretend we begin to play act. 
and hypocrisy begins to show itself to us. So is there a better way? And I think Jesus wants to show us a better way to deal with this tension between the ideal and the real. I think Jesus has some answers to show us. How can we deal with the problem of hypocrisy? It's not that the church is immune to it because my goodness, they are not and we are not. But all of humanity has to deal and answer this question of hypocrisy. Whether you believe in God or not, you have to deal with the tension that exists, that you live with, whether you follow God or you don't believe in God at all. You have to deal with this tension between the ideal and the real. And I believe that Jesus gives us the best answer around as it relates to eliminating categorical discrimination and eliminating this attitude of elitism and eliminating this attitude of unjust judgment that is made in a snap moment based on my perception of your reality, I think Jesus gives us the best example and we find it in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I'd love for you to turn there or click there in your, in your Bibles. John chapter 8, and it's one of those famous stories and a really, really great story. I'm going to walk it through and bring out some truths and then give us a solution on how we can deal with the problem of hypocrisy Jesus's way. Because if you're living and breathing, you have to deal with this problem because you live in that same, that same tension. John chapter 8, we're going we're gonna to start in verse chapter 2. It says this, at the dawn, he appeared again, being Jesus, in the temple course. In other words, Jesus showed back up to church. He showed up at the church, and amazingly, all the people gathered around him, much like you did today. Congratulations. You are following Jesus just by showing up to church. Well done. Congrats to you and me, right? So Jesus is sitting down. He's just teaching, and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these religious elite people, they brought in a woman (gasps) caught in adultery, caught in adultery, caught right in it. And they made her, check this out, the audacity of these people. They made her stand before the group. So imagine I'm teaching. The doors pop open. This isn't going to be a live illustration. You're okay, right? The doors pop open, and in comes a woman who's been caught in the middle of committing adultery. Last time I checked, you can't commit adultery with your clothes on. Caught in the act drugged into the middle, standing before us all. And people say, hey, hey, pastor, hey, Jesus, the law says that people who commit adultery, they should get stoned. Now, that's not like recreational, the stuff people are trying to legalize stone. That's like rocks at your face, blood coming out, stone. Just wanted to make sure you were hermeneutically accurate in your deduction of the text this morning. And standing before the group, Jesus said, or they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act. The law says that we must stone such women. Now, what do you say? Pause for a second. They're not wrong. That's actually what the text, that's actually what the law said. Is what they said true? Yes or yes? Yes. But was it all the way accurate? Was it the best, best way to present the truth? Well, let's keep reading and we'll find out. They said, so what do you say? Now, they were using this question to try and trap Jesus in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, there are people in your life who do the same thing to you. Oh, you go to church. Tell me what you think about. 
and all they're doing is looking for an argument and they post their perspective on Facebook and you find another meme that supports your point and this, and then it's just, just trying to trap Jesus because they didn't like what he had to say. So Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his fingers. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin throw the first stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, what did Jesus write on the ground? Coffee is better than tea. That's what he wrote. Oh, you don't believe me? Prove it. No, we don't know what he wrote. Some people believe that he started to write the names of other people, likely other mistresses of the men who were gathering around. Susie, Janice, Bethany. Uh, I don't know what he wrote. He could have just been doodling. I don't, I don't know. But here's what I know is that as he wrote, everybody leaned in to try and figure out what he wrote, but then they were having to think, wait a second. He said, anybody who doesn't have sin gets to throw the first stone. So now we're caught between a rock and a hard place. What do we do? What's the answer? How do we live this life? Because if they threw a rock, they were absolutely hypocritical. And if they threw the rock down, they were caught. And like all of a sudden, now truth won't prevail. And now judgment would be made. And by golly, judgment and truth, it has to happen. If you don't tell people how bad they are, who will? Come on, church. And Jesus bent back down and started to doodle in the ground. And at this, those who heard began to walk away one at a time. Drop, 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 drop. Stones began to drop to the ground dust began to creep up and people silently began to walk away one by one from the oldest to the youngest and Jesus was left with just the woman standing there Jesus straightened up I believe he looked her right in the eye and he said women woman where are they has no one condemned you and with trembling in her voice recognizing that she not only was caught in her sin, but was being loved and shown compassion and empathy and grace, trembling in her voice said, no, no, there's, there's, there's no one around, sir. No one's left standing here ready to stone me. With that, Jesus looked at her. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I put you in a category of ill repute. Neither do I give you a scarlet letter for being an adulterer. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I judge you. And every time I look at you, all I see is your son. Neither do I stand here knowing how nasty it is. And I can smell the intimacy all over you, woman. And no, 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 I'm not here condemning, judging. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I look at you like you've got a, scar, a checkered past. Neither do I look at you as if you are less than to, the son, to God himself. Neither do I look at you as somebody who is beyond redemption. You are not being condemned. 
condemned anymore because Jesus wasn't some spiritual elitist. Even though he had every right to be, he chose not to be because that wasn't the way of grace. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I judge you and hold you bound by your past. Neither do I condemn you, he says. And then he declares, now go and leave your life of bad choices. Is that what your Bible says? Go and make better decisions from here on out. Go and don't have any more affairs. Is that what he said? Because we like to dress up our sin, don't we? We don't really want to call it adultery. We just want to call it an affair. Oh, it's just an emotional affair. No, it's an adultery. It's sin. Jesus didn't sugarcoat what she did either, did he? He still called it a life of sin. See, because if you never come to realization that sin is actually in existence in your life, you'll never get set free. You won't be able to receive grace unless you realize that in areas you have sin. Jesus was the perfect picture of what it looked like to give grace and give truth. Jesus is the perfect example of what it looked like to deal with the sawdust in your own eye or the plank in your own eye before you grab out the speck in your brother or sister's eye. Jesus modeled for you and for me exactly what we need to do when we faced with decisions where judgment needs to be made, but we don't want to discredit and ruin relationship and send people soaring and live a hypocritical life. Jesus helped us see exactly what we look like and what we need to do when it comes time for us to deal with people in our lives and have relationship with people where they have brokenness, where they've messed up, where they've made mistakes, but yet so have we. Jesus gave us, and we have to recognize that he said, neither do I condemn you, neither do I put you in a category, neither do I always judge you, and every time I look at you, I can't help but see what you did to that person. No, no, he didn't say any of those things. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Now go and leave your life of sin. Here's the deal. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. If you're not taking notes, uh, I would encourage you to write this down. Jesus hates hypocrisy. I know that hate is a real strong word. I know we don't like to talk about hate. I know many of you have like banned that word from your house and for great reason. I understand it, but just give your pastor a little bit of grace for just a minute and let me use this word to emphasize something that I think is so incredibly important. Jesus hates hypocrisy. He hates it. He hates the fact that people choose not to forgive when they themselves have already received forgiveness. He hates that. Doesn't like it. Jesus is not a fan of you snubbing your nose at somebody because their toddler is having a tantrum when you yourself have been in positions where your toddler has thrown some tantrums. Right? Like, that's not his, his deal. Jesus hates buzzing in the middle of church. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to address the obvious, like somebody's half naked standing in your room. Well, I guess I got to do something about this, huh? Communication 101, don't ignore the thing that nobody else can ignore. Jesus hates hypocrisy. 
this word hypocrisy, if you look at it in the original language, uh, what they really meant, and, and again, you have to remember that the, the, the Bibles that we have translated into English were translated from Greek, and so you have to go back to Greek, and sometimes Greeks, they had this, they have this really complex language, and they had one word for one thing, but we've only got like, they've got like seven words for one word, but we've only got one word for those seven words, and we're like, uh, I guess we'll call it this. But this is one that was really ac- accurate. In fact, this word hypocrite literally means play actor or pretender. Literally means you're putting on a mask, right? You're, you're living in a way that causes people to create an assumption about you that is not true. So when we walk in the doors of our church and people are like, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Liar. You stayed up all night stressed out about something and you haven't found anybody willing that you're willing to trust enough to tell them exactly how it is. How are things going at work? Oh, man, they're busy. Great. We're knocking it out. When you know you're fully under review and you're scared to death, you're going to lose your job and you hate it and you want out, but you haven't told nobody about nothing because you're just, yeah, it's good. It's good. Because we have this tension between the ideal and the real. I'm not saying we need to walk around negative because those people are pretending just as much as anybody else. Jesus doesn't like the fact that we feel like we need to pretend because he's the answer to the thing that we're pretending not to exist. But he can't help us as long as we're pretending it doesn't exist. Jesus doesn't like it when we do that. It's like this masquerade ball where we all show up and put it on and we pretend to be something that we're not and it's not the way of Jesus and he doesn't like it and those religious leaders were all acting that way and that's why he called them hypocrites. That's why he looked at them and says, you're a hypocrite. And here's the deal. If you're here and you you may not believe in God, you may not even really like church all that much, but somebody told you they'd they'd take you to lunch if you showed up to church today, or uh, they told you about this crazy guy who's like all energetic and rolls up his pants and doesn't dress like anybody else in Ford Scott, and like, you got to just come and see it because like, man, I can't explain it. Uh, I don't know what brought you here or why you're staying, and you might sit there and say, listen, dude, I have a real problem with hypocrisy. Welcome to the club, Jesus. He has the same problem you do. I know you don't believe in him. That's okay. He believes in you, and it's his club that you're in. Because he doesn't like it either. He doesn't like it either. But, but, but that's not the only thing that we see in this context from this story. He, if you're taking notes, write this down. Not only does Jesus hate hypocrisy, but Jesus loves broken people. You know, the people that would want to put on a mask to hide the scar, Jesus loves those those people who have scars. Jesus loves the people who have something that they're trying to figure out. I mean, they came to him, they believe in the message, but they still got stuff that they're wrestling with. I mean, they still got sin that they're dealing with. They still have attitudes. They still have frustrations. They still have failure. They still have a past. They still have things that they're caught in, the, a lifestyle that doesn't honor God, but they, 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 they don't know any better. That's all they, they've known. They feel that's how they identify. They're caught in these things and, they, and all this stuff, but, but God still loves them. Why? Because they're honest about their brokenness. They're honest about their scars. They're honest in a pursuit to follow after him. And Jesus says, I love those people. 
You could say that not only does Jesus love broken people, but another way you could say broken people is sinners. I mean, we like broken because that like makes us feel a little bit better. If we say Jesus loves sinners and we have to identify as a sinner, that means we got to do something with that, and I'm not sure we're ready to do it. So whether you want to call yourself a broken person or you want to call yourself a sinner, either way, Jesus loves you. And he loves to use broken people. He loved, Moses was a murderer. Judas was a backstabber. Peter cut somebody's ear off and then denied Jesus. Jonah ran away and got stuck in a whale for three days. David was an adulterer. Solomon was a polygamist and a narcissist. Like, all through scripture, we see stories of broken, sinful people being used by God because it's not the vessel that matters to God, it's the availability that matters to God. God wants to use you and me. He takes your brokenness and turns it into something beautiful. He takes the mess of your life and turns it into a miracle message. He takes the trial that you go through and walk you through a testimony. I'm running out of really cool alliteration, so help me out, people. Jesus wants to use you. Because he loves broken people. Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. So if you're here and you're like, I don't, I don't like hypocrites, it's good, you're in good company. Jesus is, is, is with you too. And if you're here and say, I'm a sinner, I've done wrong things, I've got things I'm trying to work out, it's not perfect, it's not great, it's... Jesus loves you too. He wants to be your friend too. The good news is Jesus is for you and he's for me. We can't try and cover it up anymore. We just need to confess the things that we need to confess and quit play acting and be honest. You have an anger problem? Let's deal with it. You have a lust problem? Let's talk to God about it. You want to walk out on your marriage? Let's get real about it. You want to stop pretending? Take off the mask and stop pretending because then Jesus can come and he can help you and rearrange you and deal with you and help you find life ever more. Why? Because that's the kind of God that he is. Here's the deal. You can put the whole sermon into this one sentence. When we deal with ourselves honestly, we can then deal with others humbly. But until you get honest about dealing with yourself, you will never deal with anybody else with any ounce of humility. And as long as you're not dealing with humility, you will always be seen as a hypocrite. Doesn't matter what you do. You will always be seen as a hypocrite unless you learn to deal with humility. And you can't deal with humility unless you first get honest. Honesty is the beginning point for us all. Honesty is the beginning point for us all. So how do we deal humbly with other people once we're honest? How do we do that? Well, we we take a, a page from Jesus. Graced first. Truth second. Will you say that with me? Grace first, truth second. Grace first, truth second. That was what Jesus did. He gave grace first. Excuse me. He gave grace first. Grace validates a person. It doesn't validate their sin. Jesus didn't say, well, you didn't really mess up that bad lady. I guess we'll let you off this time. No. 
but he did validate the person. He gave her grace. See, grace always is, is hey, me first, me too. I am, I'm empathetic. This is a safe place. There's no shame here. Grace does those things. Grace covers those things. Grace points people to Jesus. Grace leads us to become justified. Grace is God's unmerited favor in our life. Justification, it's a really big church word. Let me break it down for you. It makes it so that when you receive the grace of Jesus, it's just as if you never sinned, declared innocent. Why? Because he took that for you and he was declared guilty on your behalf so you could be declared righteous. That's called justification and that's a work that only Jesus does. It's a work of God's great grace. Grace first. You want to know why I think Jesus knelt down and started to scribble? I don't think it mattered what he wrote. I just think it mattered that he did it. You want to know why I think that he did it? Honestly, here's why I think he did it. I think he did it to draw all of the eyes that were on a half-naked woman to the ground to cover what she was already feeling as shame. I think the crowd started to get bigger and bigger when somebody undressed stood before them, especially of the male variety, the crowd grew. And here was this woman uncovered. Everything innocent about her gone. And Jesus kneels down, starts to scribble in the sand because he doesn't want her to recognize that her dignity is being stripped away. You don't think Jesus believes in treating women right? Read that passage again. He knelt down and started writing in the stand. Why? Because all eyes followed his finger in the dirt rather than the person that was standing in front. I think he did it to cover her with grace, to cover her shame. Friends, when we point people to Jesus, you know what we need to do? Help cover their shame. Help them see Jesus who covers all of their iniquity, covers all of their sin and their guilt, and it just covers, it covers. Why? Because we've got to go with grace first. We've got to go grace first. And truth second. Greg, you can come on up. We have to go truth second. See, here's the deal. When we go grace first, or excuse me, if we were to put truth first, if we tell people the wrong that they've done, if we tell people the sins that they've committed, if we tell them how wrong they are first, we're actually not telling them the truth. We're telling them our version of what we want them to know is truth. Because then, if we go truth first, we're making a bigger deal about the sin rather than the Savior. And which is a bigger deal to God, the sin or the Savior? Savior. That's why grace goes first. We can't go truth first. We can't go truth first. We have to go grace first because grace points them to Jesus and they need to see Jesus. Truth has to be told and truth will be told. Truth is what leads us on a journey to become sanctified. Grace justifies us, big church word, but truth sanctifies us. Sanctification, another really big church theological word. I'll tell you what it means. Sanctification is the process that God's spirit does in you to wash you clean little by little, removing you and transforming your life to be more like Jesus than your life. We're all works in progress if we're allowing the truth of who God is to wash over us. 
Jesus is the one who sanctifies us with his word, with scripture, with truth. Sanctification is a result. Our, our being right, our being holy, our being pure, our, our, our ability to leave the bondage, the trappings, the failures, the frustrations, the habits, the addictions, the lifestyles. That comes when we get to know truth. But here's why truth has to go second, because we've already pointed them to Jesus and it's Jesus's truth. Listen, if we tried to go truth first, there wouldn't be anybody left in church. You wanna know why? Because we would make you clean up and get it right before you ever came to church. And you would try and judge your version of cleanness based on somebody else's version of cleanness and it wouldn't work and it doesn't work. Listen, when you first come to Faith Church, we're gonna point you to Jesus again and again and again. But the goodness of God and the love of God is that his grace is big enough to welcome you in, to create a place safe for you to belong. And as you get to know Jesus, truth gets into your heart. And little by little, the things that are sinful, that aren't right, that aren't good, those things eventually begin to get washed away and removed out of your life, little by little. I don't get to set what the order of that is. There are things in all of our lives, my life included, that I would love to sit back and say, man, I really wish they'd deal with that first. Man, we don't get to make that call. We just get to keep pointing people to Jesus, teaching truth, and the truth that's being taught lands in people's hearts, and they get to respond or not. Grace first, first, truth, second. Grace first, truth, second. Friends, there is a better way than to live a life of hypocrisy. There's a better way to deal with the tension of the ideal and the real. There is a better way. There's a better way to live your life. And it starts when we get honest so that then we can be humble with other people. It starts with honesty and it ends with our humility. Grace first, truth second. Grace first, truth second. We stand, bow your heads and close your eyes as you do. I don't want anybody to look around. It's not because we're ashamed, but it's so that you can focus and just look inward at your own heart and life because hypocrisy isn't a them problem, a neighbor problem. It's a you problem and a me problem. Here's my question to you today as you just examine your heart. Do you need to accept the grace of Jesus and actually surrender your life to him today? If you do, make that commitment. Make that commitment and say, Jesus, I wanna give you my life and I'll lead you in a prayer in a minute. For some of you, there's a truth that God has been dealing with you about, an area of your life that he's trying to sanctify in you to look more like him and less like you. What is that area of truth? Today, allow the Holy Spirit to deal with you and start doing that. Maybe you need to just stop judging people and putting them in a category and instead start showing them grace first. Grace first. What what is it that you need to commit to do today? What do you need to commit to do today? If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I'm on the first first part of that. I I need to surrender my life to Jesus. I've never asked him to be the Lord. I haven't ever done that. And today I'm relinquishing control 
and I'm choosing to follow him. I want what he's done for me. I want to see, receive the gift of salvation. If that's you, would you just put a hand up in the air so I know who to pray for today? Or just take a second. If you say, I want to say yes to Jesus today. I want to give him control and surrender in my life today. Friends, can we pray this prayer together? Say, Father God, I ask you in the name of Jesus to forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for me to give me new life. I believe in Jesus. I receive your love. I receive your grace. And I receive your forgiveness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, Father, I just speak a blessing over each and every one of us. Lord, may we wrestle today with the truth, but knowing first, God, that you gave us grace. Lord, may we deal with ourselves honestly so that we can then interact with others with humility. May we always be, as a church, as a people, as a community, grace first and truth second, God always pointing them in the ways of Jesus. We thank you for it, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.